0: I am Plot on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia, at thecommentary.ca. Ian Williams joins me again. He's just published a new work of nonfiction, Disorientation Being Black in the World. It's a thoughtful, profound book on race and racism. Mr. Williams talks about what drove him to write this book now, especially now, when we're all trying to have conversations about race. Using the word disorientation, he orients the reader to past experiences of being black and how some encounters cause racialized people to confront race when they don't have to, like when uh, one is minding their own business. Uh, One's race comes into focus in these moments, and the effect can be irritation or sometimes violence or even death. He provides examples, experiences other people have had with police, something we all saw come to the fore in 2020 with street protests, not just in the United States, but here in Canada as well. This book comes at a unique time from one of the country's unique voices. Ian Williams was born in Trinidad and raised in Canada. In 2019, he received the uh, Scotiabank Giller Prize for his first novel, Reproduction, which he uh, appeared on this program with earlier that year. His uh, short story collection, Not Anyone's Anything, his poetry collection, Personals, and his first book, You Know Who You Are, were all critically acclaimed and finalists or, and or the winner, Of major literary prizes. He was a professor of poetry in the creative writing program at the University of British Columbia for several years and is now a tenured professor at the University of Toronto where he received his PhD in English. At Ian Will Wright is the Twitter handle and his website is at ianwilliams.ca. This new book is published by Penguin Random House. We taped this interview in late September. Please welcome back to the Plant Online program Ian Williams. Professor Williams, good morning.
1: Hey, good morning.
0: Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. So we well, last talked in uh, 2015 when reproduction came out. Um, I enjoyed mm-hmm. talking to you then. Um, one of the things that um, uh, you write about in disorientation is that um, the, the last couple of years, at least, for you, um, mm-hmm. something's changed in terms of, of, of how you view the wider world. You write in the book that you're not a political mm-hmm. person, um, mm-hmm. yet with disorientation you you decided to get into the conversation about what's what's happening in the world today. Mm-hmm. What do you think's changed in the last year and a half, two years, say?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there were the rise of the social justice movements, right, last summer, mm. 2020, the murder of George Floyd. There was this um, uh, like a change of the world that really gripped our collective attention. And it was impossible not to pay attention at that point. Um, and you know, if I go through my life and I ignore the things that um, troubled me on a personal basis, or I find ways to process them. Uh, when those things are writ large across media and across like everywhere that I turn, then it's impossible to further excuse them or to look away from them. And so it really became like important for me last summer to finally look directly at these
0: things. And and the book is 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 not just essays. Say the, the, it's mm-hmm. it's memoir. It's um, mm-hmm. uh, a diary um it's 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 pieces really of of what's in your head, isn't it?
1: yeah, right, so it's you know I like to play with form a lot right, mm. and I like to move be, between things i I adapt form to my needs rather than to be constrained by it, and I feel the same way with nonfiction, too I wanted to tell the truth or to explore the issue in a number of different ways um and so yeah, sometimes you have the kind of analytical essay right, which is um let's take a look at whiteness, what is whiteness about, it? um and then there are the most kind of personal ones, which is like, what is it like to move across the country as a black man? Do I read certain things as racist incidents? Are they or are they not? Um, then there's, like what you said, the diary thing on my phone, keeping notes on my phone every time I see a black person on the West Coast. Um, so, yeah, many different kinds of writings for the many different kinds of ways that we process um, experience as racialized people.
0: Yeah, and the other thing, that there's a moment in the book, you were at a conference, it's the one where Tor- mm-hmm. tony morrison was at and yeah, you, you, you Emily. yeah you were talking about another speaker at at, at that event and yeah. um you said how you related to him because um uh, uh you're often called upon to talk, uh, to to talk about right. uh being right. part of a particular race say
1: right to um, represent so this hmm. is Gayatri Spivak right the um the post colonial scholar yeah and she said something really profound about that right um which is that, you know, we lose our identities when we are forced to speak on behalf of an entire group. Um, So, yeah, where were you going with this, Joe?
0: Well, I was was just going to say that uh, with the publication of a book like Disorientation, Mm -hmm. you're hyper-visible at the moment, Mm
1: -hmm. certainly in this conversation.
0: um, Yeah. How does that feel about uh, uh, contending with your identity,
1: say? Right. Yeah, I I mean, I I don't ever claim to represent the feelings of all black people, right? I don't think anyone can do that. Um, But this is a kind of a fallout of a systemic issue, when there have been so few black people um, speaking as themselves, there isn't kind of, um, uh, I would say, like, critical mass, because there's so few of us, every time a black person is uh, in media in a particular role, they come to stand in for the entire collective, and that's not right. In the way, like, I'm just going to reverse it and say, when a white person goes, uh, in the media, like Elon Musk stands up in front of them, he's not representing all white people. Like, yeah. he's, he's just representing himself and his interests. Um, but if I don't know uh, Cornell West or something else, maybe that's a, not not a great example. But if any actor goes up or an athlete like Naomi Osaka um, goes up and tries to speak about herself, she becomes the representative that they will ask her about Black Lives Movement, mm. uh, Black Lives Matter movements, and all of that. So we don't have the luxury of speaking so selfishly, right? Um, but maybe eventually if there are enough voices um, and enough stories start to populate and circulate, then we can speak more individually and less of less these kinds of representatives. It's impossible to represent such a large and diverse group, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: And, and that's the other thing that, that I got as um, you begin the book, that mm-hmm. um, a lot of people don't want to talk about race because it's oh. uncomfortable. They don't want to offend. And right. and so you make it clear that that yeah you you don't speak for anybody else other than right. yourself, Um right. And right. and this is this is your, your your these are your ideas. This is your story. Say.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean that discomfort um, has a long wake behind it, right? And and we can understand the reasons for discomfort. Nobody wants to be shamed or bullied. Nobody wants to say the wrong thing. Mm. Um, and and. Sort of fashions and opinions change fairly rapidly, and you want to make sure you are on the right and most uh, up-to-date side. Um, but hmm. yeah, maybe maybe I'll stop there.
0: Yeah, this word though, disorientation, for people listening to us, um, mm-hmm. it's it's such a powerful word um, hmm. because it. Um, it really describes the feeling that one feels. Now, no, I, I, I'm not black. Mm-hmm. My parents are Filipino, so I, I feel racialized, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I understood it. But for, for people listening to us right. who, who may not be racialized especially, mm-hmm. um, right. what's the best way to describe that, that sort of feeling that, that disorientation brings? Yeah.
1: Yeah. To explain how I would say, imagine yourself going about your business, right? Like you're just, Um, going through the park, or you're just walking along the street and you're looking and admiring houses on the street. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you get to a particular house, you stop in front of their hydrangeas, and you see from the front door the person come out of the front door and look shocked, but not shocked simply at seeing somebody in front of their house because they're used to it, they live on a public, but shocked that there's this black person. You know what's happening in that moment. Why is this person... Looking at my house, what is this person doing in front? Of, this particular person doing in front of my house, and although nothing has been said, I'm reminded in that moment of my blackness. I'm reminded that there's a kind of contract or understanding that black people should not look at property, mm-hmm. uh, that black people are potential, potential will come back and rob the house or something. I know what's going on in her head. I know that rec- that look of shock on her face at seeing me—the way she would not be shocked by seeing my partner or by seeing, you know, a white woman or white man in front of her house. So that's an unspoken kind of example. And so this disorientation that results is from me admiring the flowers to me noting myself as a black man observing her flowers, her property, and that this makes her uncomfortable. And so what is the script now? What happens in that moment? Do I have to disarm her or, you know, dissuade her or um, calm her fears, rather? Or can I proceed continuing to enjoy her flowers? What do I need to say to set her at ease to, uh, to make peace in that moment? Or is that not my responsibility? I'm constantly being snapped between just wanting to do the thing that I enjoy and being reminded of myself as a black person and the certain scripts that I need to perform to. Do you yeah, see that?
0: Yeah, and then and this um, explains something else that you say in the book that, that um, mm-hmm. I've only recently understood. Um, mm-hmm is that um, people who are racialized, black people especially in, the, in this context, don't have a responsibility uh, mm-hmm. to talk about race with other people, especially white people.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you, I have seen like pretty aggressive titles like, you know, why I'm not talking about race anymore with black, with white people mm-hmm. um, and all of these things. And so I understand that exhaustion on one hand, but I don't want to shut the conversation down, right? I think it's actually important for us to talk about it But um, what gets tiring, though, is leaning on black people and racialized people to find solutions um, and to set the tone for these kinds of conversations, Mm. right, for us to set people at ease and say, no, I will not attack you, no, it's okay, no, all of that, Um, and to take on that responsibility of caring for grown people's emotional health. I mean, that becomes onerous over time. And these are, I mean, the people in our lives, the people we speak to, Are intelligent and capable people who have found solutions to complex issues in their lives. They've saved their marriages. They've rescued their kids from drug use and all of that. They can figure out, I think, how to relate to someone who does not look like them, right? Simply by a little bit of of effort and and compassion and consideration and a healthy dose of empathy as well. So, but, you know, to kind of lean back and fold arms and say, Dear black person, tell me and tell society at large what to do in this moment, in this situation that you did not create, in this situation that has victimized you. Tell me how to fix it, right, rather than, you know, everything I outlined uh, earlier. So, yeah, you see that kind of bind, right? Like you understand uh, the, the, the sort of bind that we're in in the sense that we want to, continue conversations, and we want to advance society, um, but we can't bear this burden on top of the lives that we already live, mm. right? If you're an engineer and you're thinking about, you know, uh, calculating, you know, to make sure this staircase is going to not collapse on somebody, yeah. and you're called upon in work to make sure that the dynamics of your division are also, like, healthy and equitable and all that That's labor that you didn't sign up for when you went to university.
0: Indeed, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this goes into to the section of the book where you talk about white fragility. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people um, would like to think that that doesn't exist, mm-hmm. and and, right. and 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 that's the troubling part I think about mm-hmm. trying to have a conversation about race mm-hmm. when there's right. a lot of people who think that that's nonsense.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I think a lot of people are like, well, some people are. What is the problem, right? I don't have a problem with racialized people. If you guys just sort of let down your guard or whatever, just take it. It's all there for for you, right? The world is there for you the same way it's there for me. Um, and that itself exposes the problem here, right? The sense that there is no real... There's only a surface understanding of how the world works because it's only understood from the point of whiteness, the point of view of whiteness, and that betrays the attitude too that whiteness is the default position for everybody in the world. That mm. all we have to do is take um, uh, to avail ourselves to everything that is accessible, but not everything is accessible, right? Not everything is uh, like within our reach or or what have you. So. The first bullet I have in that whiteness chapter is that whiteness exists. And to posit that it exists, we need to trace its contours and its, uh, its shape, its density, um, how it came to be and all of those things. Um, and so folks who deny white fragility are the folks who first of all need to establish that to be white is to be something. It's mm-hmm. not to be like water. It's not a solution. We don't mix blackness into this neutral solution. Yeah, yeah. Right? like there is something that is whiteness and what is it and what is your ethnicity and how did you get to this country and at whose expense um, and how do you continue to thrive invisibly and how does the system um, benefit you and disadvantage other people. All of those things. And that's work too, Joe. That yeah. doesn't require black participation to do, for yeah. white yeah. folks to do. Yeah, Right? So.
0: Yeah, this speaks to, to the, the, the larger um, i guess the situation that, that we face in in our in our culture in our society that mm-hmm. we don't talk enough i think and and mm-hmm. i i don't know mm-hmm. i mean i i would hate to think that one would have to write a book uh mm-hmm. about their own experience to to say, say get mm-hmm. conversation started but i mean i guess mm-hmm. our society is i mean as you know promoting the book um mm-hmm. you'll you'll appear in other places okay. where okay. You know, you you probably don't have as much time as we're having now, say, to talk about Mm -hmm. the book, right?
1: Absolutely. It's hard to talk about it in three minutes or so on TV, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And I understand you can sort of give a a general kind of overview about it. But I really appreciate this moment here, right, that we can actually have a more sustained kind of conversation about it. Um, We don't talk enough. I mean, there's so much noise in our culture, right? So, so much noise. And people are constantly putting forward their thoughts and feelings. Every impression that passes through their mind seems to appear on Twitter. Um, Yet at the same time, um, either A, we want things to be fixed really quickly, as if to talk about something, as if to state something is to actually resolve it, right? Um, But there's actually multiple conversations that are necessary. There are conversations between groups and within groups, and across a number of other kinds of intersections that need to happen. And after and while those conversations are happening, there's actual like work and policy and changes that need to be need to be made and addressed. But it starts with, with talk. Um, and so this book I hope begins on a very small scale for us to kind of talk to the people close to us, our loved ones, our acquaintances, our friends, just one on one about racial experiences. And so for a white person to say, hey, you know, my parents are from Bulgaria and um, nobody has ever asked me where I'm from because I look just like I'm from Canada. And so I recognize that that has been a great leg up. Uh, You know, should I feel guilty about that? It's not my doing, right? If we can start talking very frankly and openly like that, um, I think there could be some progress.
0: It, it it um this idea of c- continuing conversations and, and and having conversations within communities um uh is writ um large when you talk about y- your nephew and niece um, mm, right the the, uh, the um the, their own experiences with race will probably be very different than yours
1: right absolutely so yeah my nephew and niece uh they're bi- biracial and they're living in America and they were born in the south mhm and, you know, a white mother and a black father. And they're in a very charged racial landscape uh, where they are. Uh, and my brother is quite visible, right? Uh-huh. He works out; He's muscular. Yeah. I think he can be perceived as intimidating simply because of, you know, the size of his muscles and his height, uh-huh. right? He's actually quite a gentle and sweet man. Um, and so they face a number of expectations and biases before they even open their mouths to have a conversation, right? They're being read and interpreted. My, my niece and nephew, I mean, are being read and interpreted in light of their two parents and in light of the context uh, in, in the American South. Mm. But you know what? Like I also think that a conversation doesn't necessarily need to be something so formal. And so today we're going to set aside an hour and we're going to talk about this. But it's actually all of those slight and subtle interactions that we have with people um, where we can, for a moment, like, recognize each other's experience or address something that is uh, not fair, where someone got the short end of the stick to acknowledge, recognize, and correct it. Like, it happens. It's not just hours of talk. It's these much more, much smaller things about checking in with a friend. Um, yeah. Yeah, how's your day going?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, what if um, some of the concerns that you have um, in in a few years, say, they'll just say, oh, those were all in your head, Uncle Ian.
1: Oh, right, towards the end of the book. Well, on one hand, that can mean, hey, uh, we evolved way past that. I know a society that is totally <laughs> not race or whatsoever. Yeah. Or it could be, um, there's so many ways that can be read, right? Or yeah. it could be that, hey, um, I feel such invisible advantages that I don't know what it's like um, to be that version of black that you're putting forward. Because there is a kind of striation between black and biracial and all of that. And there are degrees of advantages and disadvantages. It's not just this wholesale entire group gets marginalized, but there are ways of moving in and like between this membrane um, from inside a culture to outside of a culture. And so I think in the book I say that my nephew, who uh, passes more closely towards white might have an easier time because of his gender and that passing mm. um, component, yeah. uh, and so it's quite likely that he will face advantages, um, quite likely, I think most definitely, he will face kind of subtle and slight advantages um, as he's being received socially that a black person of two black parents might not. Right? Mm. So yeah and it comes back to those little things or culture values such as like beauty Like sure. what does it mean yeah. to be beautiful and uh to be fair haired and to be um uh fair skinned uh do those things still register subliminally to give him access in a way that it doesn't give uh, me access yeah. So, yeah
0: to 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 get superficial for just a second i've i've never sure. i've never met you but I've seen you on television. I've seen photographs yeah. of you, and and uh-huh. the one thing that's always struck me about you is your smile. Yeah, you've got a uh-huh. great smile, and you talk about that in the book that that it, <laughs> that there was there was um, some conscious work on the part of your parents growing up,
1: right, right uh, about right.
0: your teeth, right?
1: Absolutely. So my teeth were jacked all the way through middle school, and uh, my mother uh, did not want me going through life with a set of teeth like that because she knew what beauty was about. Right? She herself is a beautiful woman. Um, and she knows what, uh, the advantages that beauty can get. People want the best for their kids. And so I wore braces for far too long to correct these teeth. And I do make a point of smiling, you know? Yeah. Uh, there was a point in time where I, I consciously looked in at the mirror and like rehearsed a smile that I would need to present to the world, um, and decided on, on one. And that smile, as I say in the book, has, Little to do with my happiness or my mood at that particular moment.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, I don't always get the advantage or the luxury of being angry or, um, you know, upset, uh, because that sets people, people get very distressed, uh, when black folks are angry, right? Um, so my, my smile disarms, my smile says, Hey, I'm in control of myself at this moment. Um, I will continue to be civil to you. I'm not going to hurt you with my expensive teeth. You know, I'm not going to take anything from your store. My smile signals to uh, the world that I'm willing to participate um, to withhold myself or to suffer internally throughout this transaction so that you can be comfortable. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty... It's a true thing, but it's a pretty awful thing even to hear myself say it. Mm. Um, but passe, okay, it's the truth.
0: But there was there there were a series of photographs that I saw a year or so ago, where your smile—you you were probably happy that night, the, the the night that you won the Giller Prize. <laughs> sure, of course. And and right. there, there's a confession in the book that I found fascinating. That that. Uh. Um, you never, you never thought that you'd win it, and and the reasons that you thought you'd never win it had to do with race itself, right? Which I found fascinating right. because because um, I don't know how many authors who go into that night um, mm-hmm. think about that sort of stuff, but I guess you did, <laughs> didn't you? Right,
1: right. I mean, there's always this other layer uh, with racialized folks, right? Because we know the world can be unfair. I mean, who's to say what's fair or not in a competition like the Giller sure. um, or these big literary awards? Yeah. right? It's, it's down to taste and interpretation and luck and all of these things. Um, and any of those books could easily deserve to win. Yeah. Right? So it's not about merit. Um, but, you know, uh, racialized people were also aware that uh, you're, even if objectively you're the best, if we change the terms from something literary to something like maybe a job interview where you're clearly the most qualified person and have the greatest experience, right, that can be measured. That does not mean that you will get the job, right, because there's someone else who fits better, right, someone else who seems better for that part. Uh, And so I'm aware of those dynamics going into these situations that, um, uh, yeah, it's not entirely, it's not entirely, there are other factors at work, and one of those factors is race. Yeah. So. <laughs> so so Alex, f- Yeah.
0: So for people uh, listening to us, I think we should I should just mm-hmm. uh, just preface this by saying that that y- yeah. you'd gone into the evening thinking mm-hmm. about previous winners, um, right. uh, a, a couple of whom uh, uh, are black, and so right. y- you thought that that was probably uh, th- that would diminish your chance at, at winning the prize itself um, right. because you are black.
1: Right. 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 I was like, okay. Yeah, and so, again, to be like honest with you, why be anything else? Mm -hmm. Um, This shows like the degree, um, the degree to which repeated systemic abuses shape how I view the world, Mm. right? So it says to me that um, you've internalized some kind of message um, that the world has given you about quotas and numbers and all of that. You believe that um, the world is an inherently unjust place, right? That there are factors beyond merits that are working in this. Um, And, yeah, you've absorbed that, and it's now playing over in your mind. You don't believe in yourself. You don't believe that you can win, and it has nothing to do with you. So I'm aware of how deeply um, those messages have infiltrated my own consciousness, right, to the point that, yeah... Um, I want to say, too, that we also see that kind of situation happening when white people say that, you know, prizes, they can't win prizes because it's going to go to an indigenous writer or it's going to be. These are private conversations, right? An indigenous writer or, you know, it's time that a woman wins the Nobel or whatever. Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. Like they happen in reverse, too, but they happen. Um, it's kind of a a backlash is what's happening in sort of like uh, white culture where they feel they won't win it too. So it's happening on both sides of the racial divide, no? Yeah. Um, I'm just sort of explaining what it feels like. I think the black people, we have a longer history of sort of feeling that kind of unfairness or arbitrariness of these processes. And now white people feel kind of targeted and um, left out for same racial reasons but now that it's disadvantaging them, they feel the um, the the prick of injustice, yeah. right? The prick of unfairness, um, and they feel themselves victimized. And that's actually a pretty common state for racialized people to occupy.
0: Yeah, and it, it's um, one wonders though if if they're willing to talk about race in that context, mm-hmm. are they mm-hmm. willing to then? Um, talk about say the historic injustices in, in, in the sword and the sort right. and uh, as someone and I'm not saying this as a racialized person, but I I, I just mm-hmm. don't think so, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the backlash of that would be quite severe, right? To have that conversation yeah. because history is um, against them. Yet this is how they feel, and so what is the space then declared for them to say, "I feel mm-hmm. that in the last ten, fifteen years or so." that uh, prizes have been trying to, uh, you know, (laughs) recolor their their winners or whatever. Yeah. And I feel like this is hurting me. I feel like as a white man, I don't have blah, 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 right? Um, And, you know, while it is not my point of view or not my perspective, um, can that person say how they feel without getting canceled?
0: Mm, Exactly, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: there's a i mentioned a moment ago the the diary that we see in the book mm-hmm. um and it it's a fascinating diary in, in that you um i guess just record how many uh, black people you encountered in the course mm-hmm. of your day and and what's fascinating is that you you started it i guess in Vancouver while mm-hmm. you were living here and and you continued as you moved to Toronto mm-hmm. um, yeah. and um what i found um just fascinating was 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 when you write near the end um how it felt good and, and comforting when you did encounter someone who was black, and what, the other thing I took away from that part of the book was that um, I guess Toronto is is better for that than than Vancouver.
1: Uh, yeah, so I love Vancouver, and it was actually really difficult for that decision to leave Vancouver uh, for for other reasons. But it's it's diverse in 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 some ways and not diverse in other ways. Yeah. Um, and so there's a large Asian and South Asian population and varieties uh, within that Asian group of different ethnicities but not a whole lot of black people uh, in my in my movements in my circle and I think I have a pretty broad range right across classes and mm-hmm. um, all sorts of things. So um, I wanted to do something that was fairly objective and that was not just in my head. It was not an interpretation. It was simply, here are the numbers of black people I see every day, right? Uh, an, act- an actual and accurate log. I started keeping it on my phone, <laughs> uh-huh. and every time I saw a black person, I-, I noted it. And yeah, the results actually confirmed my perception, uh, confirmed my impressions of the world, which is, you know, some days there'd be one, maybe uh-huh. two. Many days there would be nobody at all, right, who looked like me, meaning I work Entirely, or generally within a kind of white structural context, um, there is no. Affirm- if I perceive something to be amiss or a in in interaction, uh, I am like one, one feeling data point, um, in comparison to the fifty people in that room or whatever. Right. So I'm always outnumbered. My experience is always minimized, just kind of statistically. So um, yeah, it was important for me to collect that information and see uh, just how askance it is. So consider the reverse here, Joe. Mm-hmm. Uh, consider yourself um, well, no, let's say let's say a white person were dropped into uh, uh, Tokyo or Seoul or somewhere. Sure. and they were the only white person among a bunch of Asians there um, or in an entirely black community. And this was not just kind of a vacation or something. This was how they were expected to live for the rest of their lives, yeah. right? Yeah. That you would be the only white person among Asians, which means the language that you learned at home may no longer be relevant. Your frame of reference in this, uh, the country where you grew up is no longer uh, relevant there. Um, all of those other features uh, you would be hyper-visible, You'd always be this exotic kind of other. Yeah. You'd be trying to go about your business, and repeatedly reminded of your whiteness all the time. I would argue that most white people would not be comfortable with that, and that they would make a change in their life if it were within their control, mm-hmm. unless they were granted the privileges of whiteness, right? But I'm assuming, let's—if we can nullify that.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: If they would be worshipped and be God or whatever, yeah, some people might might opt for that life, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, and so I think that kind of example helps us understand what the experience of um, many middle class black people are, right? If you're the only black on your street yeah. or in your neighborhood or whatever for the rest of your life, that kind of inundation of whiteness um, is really taxing. Mm-hmm.
0: The the other fascinating part, and um, this has to do with race, but it also doesn't. But but I, I I want to mention it because I thought it was just a profound moment in the book. You talk about the the conspicuous consumption, the valuation that that's here in Vancouver, and and um, you know we hear about it a lot, obviously, in the news when they talk about real estate and the sort. Um, but you know the examples that you gave in the book were the the sort of cars that you see on the street and. and right yeah it's stark when you go to other places and, and you know you don't see yeah. uh, new cars even um mm-hmm. as much as you see here in vancouver um mm-hmm. that people seem to display um their wealth or their whatever they have overtly um as a way to say um mm-hmm. that they're worth being here
1: right right yeah. You know what? There are things in the book here that I wanted to put forward as a kind of model of vulnerability, right? So things that, you know, and that's one of the things that I'm still thinking about, actually. So it's not, it's not quite resolved for me, but that's where I was, and that's where I am right now, right? So those attitudes might shift, but I do want to say um, that what we all want is like to, to be seen, to be loved, to be, uh, you know, appreciated, and all of that. And if there are ways to do that. If there are ways to snag on the attention of somebody as a person of value, then I feel like folks would do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I argue that that conspicuous consumption that happens in Vancouver with the brand names and the um, sports cars and all yeah. of that is to say, hey, I'm not one of those people you think about when you think about Asians or blacks or racialized people. I have something else, right? I am, um, I've got a very, um, a kind of value that you also value, right? A kind of value that you also recognize, right? Look at this and look at that. Um, you know, because I find it hard to believe that the brand itself gives people pleasure, right? That a Canada Goose um, sure, is yeah. significantly yeah. better, or that, you know, uh-huh. um, driving a BMW is actually makes your commute that much better than driving, you know. A Honda or whatever—that might be. I don't know. People might be up in arms about that. Um, so I think there, this kind of buying or this kind of display, uh, is not just for the benefit or the comfort of the purchaser, but it also signals something about social standing, right? That's not a revolutionary kind of thought. Um, but the degree to which racialized people engage in that, uh, and what it signifies to a, a racialized person versus a white person. I mean I I wish somebody would explore
0: that some more. You yeah, know I'm sitting here in my office here in Vancouver at home and I'm surrounded by um way too many books. Mm-hmm. Um, b- but one of the things that that I've uh, done in recent years cuz I'm a, a a political junkie is mm-hmm. collect political buttons.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And um I I'm slightly younger than you but I've got buttons going back 100 uh, about 100 years or so.
1: Oh wow.
0: And um I've got thousands of buttons. Wow. And um in a way, after reading your book, I realize um, because they've done I, I, they've done radio pieces on on the collection, they've done they've written articles on it um, mm-hmm. in in the media. That um, in a way, maybe this was my way of saying that hey, yeah, I know politics mm-hmm. as a bit of a sort of an amateur historian, if you will. Mm-hmm that I could have a point of view on politics that that I could tweet about at least or or talk about on a podcast um, because I know my stuff.
1: Right, right. I mean, excuse me. Pardon me. Bless you. We all have have those things, right? We all have those crutches or those visible displays that say to other people, hey, haha, this is my value here, right? I feel like books in an office are the same kind of thing, right? Um, we may never go back to some of those books, even for reference, but it's important to hold on to them. Uh, You know, they're kind of like souvenirs of your intellectual history, right? There's some of that. But they also say to people when they step in, ooh, this is a little bit intimidating, right? Ooh, this person is well-read, right? Um, And so whatever it is, I feel like we we should not need to, as racialized people, behind these kinds of, um, like, object performances in order to be taken seriously or, or in order for us to be assumed to have political knowledge, mm. right? Um, yeah, we should be able, at face value, to have the best assumed of us rather than to do that work just to prove it and then to do our job, right? Mm-hmm. First, we must prove that, hey, um, pay attention to me. Hey, listen to me. And once that has been established, then we can go forward with what we're saying in a way that a white person could just speak, right? Yeah. And they will be given the benefit of, of a good audience.
0: Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you um, in the book. Um, you talk about... Uh, you mentioned this in, in relation to your friend Pierre, but religion also comes um, up uh, a couple of times in the book. Um, has the practice of religion... Has that always played a part in your life or your week, say?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for a lot of black people, there's a kind of acculturation um, to, uh, like, a sort of Christian worldview. Um, yeah, right, right. I'm curious it, to see what you're... Yeah, what you're d- does
0: it, does it... Um, mm-hmm. Do you find any insight in Christianity in terms of race?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely like Christianity. has been abused and like misrepresented in order to achieve like, um, uh, the racial aims of of, like a colonial white person. Yeah, yeah. So there's that, right, the kind of misapplication of it. Um, and that misapplication is both like an extension, an arm of power, but also teaching racialized people how to receive abuse, right, you know, obey your master, all of that kind of thing. Um. But if, again, like not interested in like, uh, like artifice, but if we strip back to like the purest and the core messages of it, it of like how to relate one person to another, Uh like not as male or female or Jew or Greek or, uh, you know, slave or free or anything, Uh but just to relate to like one soul to another. I think there is some real great insight about how we ought to be, um, but you know like this is not a fashionable message these days. We kind of have like um, a humanist morality which right. takes its roots there. Um, but I think it's partly not fashionable because it calls for so much from us you know like mm. to to practice their Christianity without dogma and Christianity without like um, uh, I don't know like religious constraints, right? I mean, denominational constraints. And actually, like, to live to the expectation of of an ideal human state, right? A kind of perfectionism that is, like, beyond us, and a kind of love or generosity or kindness that is beyond, you know, how we live selfishly. I don't think we can handle that. So I feel like it's it's easier for most folks to just dismiss the whole thing, right, as archaic and yeah, and yeah. all of that. But you know, religion is something I'm going to think about, you know, <laughs> maybe a couple of books down the road. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's definitely been used right now as a kind of really off-putting political weapon, right? Yeah. That yeah. it aligns people with a certain side, and it's really quite disgusting, right, when it's used in that way. Um, so. Yeah, it too has its phases
0: and its fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not a religious person, um, mm. but I, I find talking about religion interesting, and mm-hmm. um, it, 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 it you you are right that that um, it is not a, a fashionable thing to talk about, and so oh, I wonder no. uh, if if um, as, as we uh, as the discourse moves to say more uh, secular or, or modernist views. D- does that, um, say, preclude yeah. a certain um, a, a discussion from black people?
1: Mm-hmm. Or right. is, is it right. automatically like
0: if, discounted because it's, say, it comes from a religious bent, if you will?
1: Yeah. You know what, like, I feel like, um, and this is true, too, I think, for indigeneity, right, where there are mm-hmm. a number of spiritual beliefs yeah. that are yeah. um, kind of, oh, it's pretty, pretty sad, like, Kind of tolerated or permitted these days yeah. but without any real serious commitment to them mm-hmm. um, so I yeah I feel that um, but one thing about racialized people is that we are used to living in multiple uh, <laughs> multiple realities yeah right that we can exist um, in a world where one set of rules applies and then exist in a world where another set of rules apply and to move through that dissonance with sophistication in a way that white people uh, perhaps have a more coherent um, and single kind of mode of operation Mm. or single system. Uh, And so it's perfectly possible for uh, a black person to hold Christianity next to secularism, next to his white life, next to his black life. next to is private life and public life, and all five of those things or six of those things being held in opposition, all equally true, mm-hmm. um, and all sort of uh, it being emitted from, like, facets of himself, right? So um, that kind of internal sophistication, I think, is one of the advantages. It's like being bilingual or something, right, That um, or multilingual, uh, it's one of the advantages of being disadvantaged.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, I could um, talk all day with you, um, and I've mm-hmm. kept you longer than I said I would. But this is just just uh, for people listening. To this this is this is why the book is such a, a necessary read, um, because it's mm-hmm. fascinating in so many ways. And um, I really appreciate your time today. Congratulations on this book and good luck with it.
1: Thank you, Joseph. It's really good talking with you too. Yeah. you the same attention today. Thank you.
0: The book is called Disorientation, Being Black in the World. It's published by uh, Penguin Random House. It's author Ian Williams. Join me on the line from Toronto and Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.